I want to I want to put this as strong oops sorry I want to put this as strongly as I can so that there's probably going to be a little bit of exaggeration here not much a little bit at the center of Homer's the Iliad the relationship between Paris and Helen started the war the fight between Achilles and Agamemnon, a quarrel over Bryces. The king takes his woman away. Achilles withdraws from the war. Love relationship. The Odyssey. Odysseus is struggling to get home to Penelope. It takes 20 years. Eight of those nine years that he's away on the voyage is spent under the influence of mythic powers. Those are not human women, those are not affairs. He's dealing with mythic. Homer's dealing with something else. It takes, he's away from home for 20 years. But it ends with he and Penel him and Penelope going to bed. Remember Athena stopping time? Um, and it began with um, Telemachus, the Odyssey begins with Telemachus going to Menelaus and Helen's marriage, home, and Nestor and, um, I can't remember his wife. But marriages are at the center of that book. Chaucer. Can you find a major story, a major story in Chaucer that doesn't deal with romantic love? Shakespeare's plays, the comedy certainly. Did he write a comedy that didn't deal essentially with romantic love? Jane Austen, James, Dickens, okay? And now to Dostoevsky, so there's a jump. Here's where I'm going. What happened with Melville and Hawthorne? This would be probably one of the most important things you'll get out of reading Dostoevsky, or coming from Hawthorne and Melville to Dostoevsky. We've just left two great American texts in which romantic love has practically no place. We're entering a Russian world in which every major character is involved in a real, a, a romantic love that involves real suffering. Why? What does that say? Go ahead, Mary. So I didn't notice it until the long letter that maybe romantic love is dirty, not good, it's evil, that you should. Those kinds of feelings are, are, not, are not good. They're evil, yeah. yeah See? Connie, I'm sorry. Right. Flesh that out. Oh, well, the body is not good. I mean, it's like we be, you know, we be a little kind of little bodies, but we take care of our bodies because we know the Holy Spirit is within us, but the Protestants don't think that. Yeah, if nature's corrupt, how can you love? Natural love comes from nature. I mean, most of us fall in love not under divine, I mean, most of us, I think, don't fall in love under some divine, maybe, divine inspiration. We fall in love at a natural level. I mean, we, we do the things we do naturally, some of them not good. You know, we're living, I mean, Hawthorne was really clear. Remember when Dimsdale left the force to be the natural man? I mean, so in all of these works, from the very beginning, through Chaucer and Shakespeare, where the Christian Middle Ages come to their maturity, Romantic love is at the center of every story. Jane Austen, tell me a story that wasn't about 
the love between a man and a woman. Every Shakespeare comedy. Um, but not so with Melville and Hawthorne. Because we're entering a world in which nature is corrupt and what's natural is not good. The Catholic would say was not, what's natural is good. Kids do young, stupid things. I know Suzanne and I, I mean, I think most of us were a little bit foolish when we first fell in love. Maybe not you guys, but, but I think most of us. And, <laughs> but isn't it, can I, am, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'll speak for myself, but I think it's a fair generalization. Most of us learn through some pain that we have to outgrow some of that romantic love um, because there's things about it that are self-centered and egotistical and, you know, to go to a cross takes you to a different level. So just an interesting insight. I mean, it's a way of sort of doing a review backwards, going to Hawthorne, you know, in a without doing a major review, but we're entering a Russian world and the difference between West and East is going to be very clear and yet Peter's going to try to westernize but what we find there when we enter that world is all the major characters get involved in a romantic love and most of the time it becomes torturous. Okay. Now hold on one last thing and then I want to leave um, you with time to question. In Shakespeare were love and law incompatible, or were love and law compatible? In Shakespeare, love and law are compatible. It's the hardest thing to do to get them together. Portia, remember, she's the one who saves Venice. Um, she comes to defend the law. Nobody else can do it. She's the one who reconciles um, law and love. Helena did the same thing in France in All's Well, um, um, in uh, The Winter's Tale. Paulina did it with um, Leontes when Leontes was a tyrant and broke the law everywhere. Because in Shakespeare's time as a Christian, he knew that what Christ did was fulfill the law in love. That the most important thing in the world is to order our loves because our loves are bad. Chesterton did it within, a, I mean, he said it wonderfully in a, What's Wrong with the World? That was the title of one of his books. His answer to what's wrong with the world is, I am. <laughs> I mean, how many of us begin saying, I'm what's wrong with the world? Most of us are put, here's, here's Hawthorne's, here's Hawthorne's world. Here's what's wrong with it. Here's what's wrong with you, right? Hawthorne begins with everybody pointing their finger at Hester. If anything, Hawthorne is helping us to go inside to feel we all have sins because it will help us become better people than what we do with each other. So we, we're moving from Hawthorne and Melville with these theologies at work um, from a Christian world, Shakespeare, in which law and love were reconcilable. We're entering a modern world that's all changing now. Science is becoming the dominant mode of thinking. But now we're going to Russia while it's on the edge of entering a modern world. And we already know what will happen. It's going to become communistic. But at this point, this is that transition period where it looks, it's still a Christian people, but it's being absolutely torn apart. And the story is about that tearing apart, that dislocation. The, it's being dislocated everywhere. And in some ways, it's a reflection of what's going on in America. 
and we would learn a lot about ourselves reading this story because it's happening to us. It's been happening for... But let me stop. That's a review. Short review. It's one of my, what do you call it, fire hydrant reviews. Any questions or comments or... The two outlines, the two notes of outlines I've given you I think are pretty good, pretty thorough. They, they should help you. And you know online, if you go to the site, there are hard copy files. You can go on print them. There are study guides. The study guide's pretty good. You know, it'll go through chapter by chapter. It just gives you a summary so that it should help you. And I also gave you a list of names. Because <laughs> you know every character in this book has ten different names. And <laughs> Any questions or comments on what we're about to start? It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Wonderful storyteller. One of the interesting things to look ahead that will pick up my introduction here, some of my introductory thoughts. This book is going to end with a trial. Um, remember the turning point in uh, Merchant of Venice? What was the turning point? It was a trial. A person was brought, somebody outside Venice, nobody in Venice could have done that. Outside Venice, a woman. Portia comes into that world and she's able to use reason to bring law and mercy together. Not put them apart. If law had been done, Antonio would have been killed. If mercy had been done, Shylock would have been wiped out. Who would have risked then? If the law doesn't stand, who would have, you know? She's the only one who holds that together. Um, Brothers Karamazov is going to end on a trial. Dimitri is going to be accused of something. The whole plot is going to have him as the sort of central figure holding it together. It's going to end in a trial. I want everybody, particularly if you're moving along and you're ahead of us, when you come to that trial, ask yourself in what way Dostoevsky's handling of that trial differs from Shakespeare's handling of that trial in Merchant of Venice. Because a trial is the the turning point, the, the turn, the, the peripatia, the turn. Um, because everything hinges on what that outcome is. So pay close attention because one of the wonderful things you can see in Dostoevsky is the difference between Shakespeare and Dostoevsky and something Western and something Eastern. Okay. By the way, I meant to say this because you're here tonight and I'm just thinking about you. Chuck, um, Chuck suggested we do some more, he suggested that we do some more Shakespeare. I have no, in I mean, I'm, I'm just coming, I'm, I can feel my age everywhere, I'm just losing it, but um, if we do anything it would be to, um, to end with a couple of Shakespeare plays, just to pick out, you know, three or four Shakespeare plays and do Shakespeare, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens, but... Okay, any comments on, on what's happening? Or these, this sort of broad overview of St. St. Petersburg is a new city. It's not like the polis. This is an artificially constructed city 
by means of man's powers of reason, of science, of enlightenment ideas. What's the great conflict between um, conservatives and liberals in America today? It's a conflict between a traditional way of looking at things and enlightenment ideas. And most people on the left look at Christians as if they're blighted. They're, they're the ones who have all these enlightened ideas and Christians are superstitious and bigoted and dumb and we have a fight on our hands and we've got to be articulate. We've got to be able to understand these things and pick up this conflict. But it's a conflict between enlightenment ideas and traditional. Um, Can I ask a question? Did I miss something here? Is this is the setting of this book St. Petersburg? No, it's Russia. It's just Russia. Yeah. Well, no, it's a particular it's a particular town with a monastery, but but St. Petersburg, Moscow, the major cities and the major cities in Europe are present by influence. They're centers of power. Um, and it's interesting that, that we've got to go to the narrator. We're, we're being told a story of a family that's not in St. Petersburg or, you know, but... No questions? I can't believe that. Are we ready to... Huh? No, I know everybody's. All of you are well into this with your three breaks, yes? Yeah. Here, I want to. Take a look at the notes because there's a good bit in the notes that um, I think will help get you started with all of this. Doc, can um, Oh, thank you. Thanks. It's just getting harder. Thanks. Thanks. Dostoevsky was born in the early years of the 19th century and he died in, late in the 19th century. He had a gambling addiction all of his life. I don't think it ever stopped. And I think I've mentioned this to you. Faulkner had a drinking problem. Um, he did. He wasn't an alcoholic. He wasn't an alcoholic. But every time he finished a novel, he went and drank and had to sleep it off pretty serious. And my response is, I don't know how anybody could have done what he did and not drink because Flo, Flaubert has said, um, priests, priests, I can't, soldiers and poets face death every day. And I believe that. The really great poets have to risk looking at living the hardest things in our life. Shakespeare had to look at horrible things. Dante did too. Um, he had a gambling addiction all of his life. Um, in the middle of his life when he was I think 28, um, he was accused of being involved with these revolutionary groups and he was sentenced to death. This was in 1949 I think. He was taken and put before a wall knowing that he was going to be executed. And in the middle of that ordeal, his execution was stayed and he was saved. So Dostoevsky knew what it was like to go up to a moment when he knew the next moment he would be dead. So his whole life went before him as if it were gone. So he's had a rare experience of feeling his whole life gone to have it given back. And I don't think that's a small thing. 
He was a, a source of great consolation to his fellow prisoners. He was sent into Siberia um, and finally released. Um, he was a radical writer um, and he wrote um, during a period when so many great Russian writers were writing. Remember that phrase I gave you from Alan Tate? Alan Tate said, at a, at a moment when a society reaches its maturity and it's about to fall, that's when the greatest poetry is produced. The Renaissance, Homer's period, modern America here, with the change after the Civil War. Whenever a country reaches its maturity or it has to question its roots, its metaphysical roots, it's a time of great turmoil. People can't look back to what they believed in. They can't trust that anymore. They don't know what to do. The old codes don't work anymore. What do they do? How do they act? What words can they speak? The poet, I've said this again and again, the poet is the one who helps us to find words at times like that. He wrote his, his most important books are Crime and Punishment. That's a book all of you should read, The Idiot and Demons. And I mentioned a word about it. Demons was originally called The Possessed. The Possessed. But critics took exception to that title because they said it wasn't so much about the possessed as it was about the possessing. Those agents who were doing this, so like the um, nefarious. It's not about the guy who's possessed, it's about the demons possessing it. So it's been renamed in modern translations the demons or the devil and the brothers Karamazov. So if you think, if you just think about the titles, nobody in the modern world has gone to depths of Christianity more than Hawthorne, Melville, Dostoevsky. Eliot will follow but Eliot doesn't have near the scope that these writers have had. Um, now, I want to just to get us going. This is a novel. You know that the narrative point of view, we've talked about it before, is very important. Um, um, the narrator of, um, of um, sorry, Scarlet Letter is like a persona of Hawthorne because we know that whoever wrote that worked in the custom house and found it. That was Hawthorne himself. So the writer of that story is Hawthorne taking a, an official document from the custom house and using that as the basis to the story that that document was about. So from Hawth it's his way of trying to make credible an incredible story. Some people would say it's romantic. This is nonsense. Hawthorne's doing everything he can to show that the miraculous should be a part of our life that the modern world makes no place for it. So Scarlet Letter was written in an attempt to answer that. Is everybody following me? Melville's facing the same problem. People said this is immature romance stuff. It's not real. He's doing everything he can to ground it. The, um, the narrator is Ishmael, which says, he says, call me Ishmael. That man's name is not Ishmael. We don't know what it is, right? He says, call me Ishmael, which means he's identifying himself with the outcast one that's implicitly a criticism of the Protestant world, the chosen people. These are the people who came here to make a new nation, right? He's saying, call me Ishmael. He's an outcast. In the whole opening, it shows he's not his, he, he sleeps with a cannibal, 
and becomes fun and he says my, my splintered heart was softening my heart was breaking he was learning to love and he, he starts to worship um, Yojo with with the uh, Craig and he says I'm going to be I'm damning myself I'm going against my Presbyterian brothers so the narrative point of view was crucial because the whole point of Moby Dick was Ishmael is criticized there's something wrong with his Christianity and he takes this voyage and as he learns what he learns is opposite of Ahab Ahab can think about nothing but himself he's a victim all he can think about is himself Ishmael learns to see that he's only happy when he's not thinking about himself and he finds goodness everywhere all these analogies everywhere whales skeletons birds books paintings stories there's nothing that he looks at that isn't full of meaning so it's a return to a medieval view that nature is rich with intelligibility and beauty and Ishmael is the means of bringing that to it in fact his view is greater than Ahab's because he makes a place for Ahab's story would Ahab have made a place for Ishmael's story not there would have been no place in his life for Ishmael's story he's too focused on himself and his own injuries is everybody following so the narrative point of view is always a part of the meaning of a story it was that way for Hawthorne it's that way here who is this narrator what do we know about the narrator I'm just going to give read a couple of things to get us going so on the very first page when he's describing um, Theodore and his marriages he says um, Theodore um, Pavlovich's first wife belonged to a rather wealthy aristocratic family the Musovs also landowners in our district precisely how it happened that a girl with a dowry a beautiful girl too and moreover one of those pert intelligent girls not uncommon in this generation but sometimes also to be found in the last could have married such a um, worthless runt as everybody used to call him I cannot begin to explain but then I once knew a young lady still of the last romantic generation who after several years of enigmatic love for a certain gentleman whom by the way she could have married quite easily at any moment ended up after inventing all sorts of insurmountable obstacles by throwing herself on a stormy night into a rather deep and swift river from a high bank somewhat resembling a cliff and perished there decidedly by her own caprice only because she wanted to be like Shakespeare's Ophelia now here I'm going to read a couple more but I want to I want to stop shortly just on page 11 um, quarter of the way down the page um, though Piotr Alexandrovich may have exaggerated still there must have been some semblance of truth to a story but all his life as a matter of fact Fyodor Pavlovich was fond of play acting of suddenly taking up some unexpected role right in front of you often when there was no need for it and even to his own real disadvantage as for instance in the present case this trait however is characteristic of a great many people even rather intelligent ones and not only of Fyodor Pavlovich uh, Piotr Alexandrovich he likens him to the same thing um, Um, bottom page 14 15 it so happened that the general's widow too died sometime after her will um, 
go down a few lines, but in a way that will make it at least at last until their coming of age, for it's quite enough of a handout for such children. And if anybody wants to, let him loosen his own purse strings, and so on and so forth. I did not read the will myself, but I've heard that there was indeed something strange of this sort in it, and rather peculiarly expressed. The old woman's principal heir, however, turned to be an honest man, the provincial marshal of nobi nobility of that province. Yefim Petrovich Polnov, after an exchange of letters with Fyodor, he guessed at once that no one could drag any money out of him, go down, but in such cases always simply delayed, sometimes even pouring out sentimentalities. He took a personal interest in the orphan and came especially to love the younger ones, Alexei, who for a long time even grew up in his family. Um, Yefim is going to be an important figure for the family. But anyway, I'm just picking out some passages. Any thoughts about the narrator? Can we, do you have any feel for this narrator just in, in the opening chapter? In the opening chapter, he gives us the background of each of the boys. Dimitri, um, Ivan, and Alexei and um, how they were, God, inhumanly passed on by their father, ignored. The father didn't even know sometimes when they were in the house. I mean, he just, so the father passes them off. He goes about living his life the way he wants. The boys get passed off from one person to another. Um, Gregory, the, the servant, has them for a time. Um, the widow comes and gets them. She's got money. She watches them for a time. So he's setting out the story to give a background, so we have some sense of who the boys are. Do you have any sense of the narrator? So we've had very particular narrator. Hawthorne na narrated Scarlet Letter. Um, Ishmael narrated Moby Dick. Um, we're into a modern world now. This is so we've been reading epics. Remember, the epics were told by the gods. Sing, goddess. The, the poet always referred to a goddess and brought a goddess in to tell the story. Is everybody following me? In the epics, Homer invokes Calliope. Sing, goddess, tell me the story about Achilles. Sing, goddess, tell me about Odysseus. Virgil, sing, goddess, tell me about the man, of, um, the fugitive, who's trying to find a home. Now, we're in a human world with human narrators. Hawthorne was narrator of Scarlet Letter, Ishmael of Moby Dick, what do we know about this guy? Can anybody begin to put anything together? He's very close to the characters of the story himself. He's almost in it. He blends with the characters sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it, he identifies them. It's, yeah. Um, his language, his way of looking, um, he makes editorial comments. Like that first one I read, what does that say about him? When he says, when he describes the girl jumping on, in fact, what does that say about him and what does it say about Russia? He says, but then, but then I knew a young lady, still of the last romant, uh, romantic generation. Um, she could have married quite easily. She ended up um, inventing all sorts of insurmountable obstacles by throwing herself on a stormy night into a rather deep and swift river from a high bank somewhere resembling a cliff and perished there decidedly by her own caprice only because she wanted to be like Shakespeare's Ophelia. We're going to keep encountering people who are very influenced by Western ideas, particularly literature. What does that say about, 
would Portia ever have contemplated suicide? What's the difference between Portia and say this young girl that the narrator's talking about? Does it say anything about the Russian people or the narrator? Melody, we're gonna, we're just starting. So this is all, I mean, it's not like everybody's well into this and, you know, speaking after 500 pages. You have any thoughts about the narrator so far? Who are you talking about? Who? Portia. Oh, right. Oh, right. But this narrator. Huh? I'm sorry. I agree with Chuck on the, the uh, narrator knew almost like a family, a close family friend or a, a relative who knew all the little circumstances about each person's story, but also called them out on all their bad habits and their bad personality traits. Yeah. Um, just for a contrast, do you remember how much Shakespeare made a point of um, um, Portia's obedience? She obeyed her father. She had to go through that ordeal, so she was going to face a death something of a death. She had to marry. She was facing the prospect of marrying somebody she might not want to marry. Probably wouldn't want to marry. So she did everything she could remember to help Bassanio get the, you know, answer the puzzle. But she was being obedient to her father. Desdemona did not obey. She eloped. Serious problem in Venice. That is modern, modern commercial republic. The modern commercial republic. Where people are encouraged to do whatever they want. Here we get a sense of a narrator who's beginning to piece things together and, and what he pieces together is extraordinary. He's telling us a story, but it's a story he, he thought enough of what was going on to piece it all together because we only have this because he, and you know that he's already piecing stuff together. You heard this from this person and so on and there are things he doesn't know so we can begin to trust him. It's not like he's making things up. He won't claim to know something he doesn't. So I think he's earning our trust. He tells us things. Um, he's piecing things together. So he's very conscientious. Um, and what, what he's revealing over and over again is how romantic the Russian people is. They tend to live at extremes, in passionate extremes, very passionate, very passionate. Was, does Portia give in to her passions a lot? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. She was thoughtful. Remember, she grew up with philosophy, the arts, virtue. She was taught virtue, to be virtuous. Um, Russia has none of that behind it. This is an old Christian regime, intensely romantic, very passionate. Um, and, and we're seeing an image of that old world in the Father. Um, just for a contrast and then we'll stop. There's no Catholic Church. There's no formation. Um, there's an autonomy between orthodoxies. So different monasteries would have their own autonomy. 
So they're not under one power. It's not like the Catholic Church. There's not a bureaucracy. So there are dialectic differences, regional differences, differences in practices. But the religious communities have a kind of autonomy. Um, where's it going? Um, God bless. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Where was I going? What I don't try to get in this head of mine. Um, Portia was obedient. She didn't give in to her passions. In Russia, we're watching a narrator who's pulling things together. Oh, old man. Fyodor looks back to an old world, right? We're watching a new world emerge, right? His sons. Fyodor is an image of something passing, something new is coming in. What's his way of living? Does he have, is anybody governing him? Is there anything overseeing him? He can do what he wants. There's autonomy for people. What does he do? He's a lech. Um, um, in, when he marries that young girl, Sophia, Alyosha's mom, whom he feels very tender about, he performs sexual acts with other women in the house. I mean, he goes out, um, he does what he wants, he gets drunk. So we're watching a man who's reaching old age, a part of an old Russia. There's no structures, it's a town. So he's doing stuff and who's stopping him? Nobody's going to break into his house. So we're watching an old way present in what Fyodor does right at that moment when it's when a new world is coming in. So be aware that we're on that threshold. And Fyodor is an image of something and he's in the midst of something he does not understand. All he cares about is sex, drinking, and money. He's a fanatic about money. And what brings the family together are quarrels about money. Sound familiar? So here's the starting point of the novel, okay? This is, um, I wanted to get into some of the characters, but I'm, I'm going to leave. This is just to sort of set a context, okay? Next week when we meet, we're going to look at each of the characters specifically doing things. I want to get as quickly as we can to the Grand Inquisitor scene because it's going to be one of the most important scenes early on in the novel. It's going to deal with Christ's temptations. So we're going to go directly there. But anyway, um, as soon as we get the introduction, we're going to go immediately to all the men who are meeting. And the first thing they're going to talk about are, is the conflict between church and state, between the ecclesiastical world and state. So what's foremost on Dostoevsky's mind, because it was happening to his life, was government taking over power, the place of religion, um, his way of looking at that relationship between church and state, and his criticism of Catholicism in the West. Okay? So immediately we're going to go to one of the most important subjects of the whole novel, which is a state that's changing its nature and an old religion that's losing its place. Does that sound familiar? Done.